Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. This is Chris Jackson. And uh, what are we talking about this week, Fred? Well, I got a, it wasn't a specific request. It was a, an idea that somebody was posing for an article for the site. So it's more like a suggestion, I guess. And it just, I don't know, it didn't smell right. And I'm not exactly sure why. Um, without getting into all of the details of it, but it was basically if you've got, um, you don't really want to use just the basic fit rate that the vendor sends you and you ask them for the data, which I think is a good idea. Ask them for the data, right? And right. what test did you run? What conditions? How, you know, all those kinds of things. That's a good thing to do. But then it's turned odd to me. It was instead of saying, all right, well, they ran this temperature, this stress, you know, for this kind of condition. Um, they were saying we're looking for this kind of failure mechanism. You could use some model if it was available for that failure mechanism under those stresses to say, all right, here's some early tale of our, of our distribution for this thing. You get some information that way. That's the way I would approach it. But what he, they, he was talking about, and I've heard about it before, is you say, all right, well, I had 77 samples, let's say, and I ran them for 1,000 hours. Well, calculating a failure rate out of that is really difficult because dividing by zero is, a, is frowned on. It's mathematicians, yep. you know, do stuff with that. Yep. It, I think there's something wrong with our math, but that's the way it works. It's, so anyway, he said, well, so we assume that there's a failure in the next instant and we have one failure. And so you divide the, do the calculations and you get a failure rate estimate based on no failures. And it's like, okay. So 77,000 divided by one and you get, and you get a number or one divided by 77,000 hours. And it's assuming it's a constant failure rate, so you can just tally up all the hours for all the individual units. I always would go with, it only ran 1,000 hours, and you had no failures. So it's 1,000 hours divided, not 77,000. Don't assume it's exponential. And nobody liked that because you get a much lower number. But then he said, then that calculation is your, 60th percentile confidence bound, lower confidence bound for that failure rate. I'm like, what? Where, what? uh, I don't understand where that came from. And that's what basically was like, I need to talk to Chris about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm familiar with it. And I mean, that, that whole assumption stuff where, yeah, we assume the failure is imminent is a phrase I hear a lot and you have a lower confidence bound and it's based on something. But the, this is, I suppose, the bigger point for me is that reliability, the reliability standards that be seem to, you know, the textbooks, professors, the old guys. Is this your ponderous professor from your webinars? Yeah, that dude. It's all, it's, they all drink from the classical or frequentist school of statistics. Uh, Kool-Aid. That, well, it's always that. It's always that. Because you can't use Bayesian analysis because Bayesian analysis introduces opinions and subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's from Berkeley. I went to Stanford, so I'm a frequentist. I'm sorry. Uh, 
<laughs> we have football teams I, that rival, so we can't do theirs and they can't do ours. But when you actually talk right. to the statisticians in both buildings, they're like, oh, yeah, no, we use all this stuff all the time. Right. But in terms of what we're supposed to use and what people are trying to copy from textbooks when they have this problem that this man has, this man, woman, person. this person has, yep, has assumed, you know, oh, we're going to assume a 60% lower confidence bound and all that sort of good stuff. The problem I have is that the, those sorts of activities and those sorts of processes and procedures where you failure is imminent, 60th percentile lower confidence bounds and things like that, um, it's neither one thing nor the other. It's got this frequentist based space because everything has to be frequentist or classical. We can't have Bayesian. You can't have you, know, you can't have subjective opinions or anything else. But everything else after that is subjective opinion, like we're going to have a failure occur imminently after we finish testing. And we're going to have a 60th percentile lower confidence bound, which is based on your favorite, the constant hazard rate. Um, and that lower confidence bound is, is chosen for a reason because it tends to be quite conservative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, if you've got something which is not exhibiting any failures during your testing, you don't know how it's going to fail. You don't, if that's well, the only thing you're going off. That's if the only thing you got is that we ran 77 units for a thousand hours. And, and see, that's where I, I think where I deviated was even earlier. It was, well, why were you testing at 85C for what failure mechanism? What was this test supposed to show? You know, mm-hmm. if you had an issue with uh, epoxy attachment and it would reveal c- contamination issues, or if it had a CTE issue, if you had a thermal cycling or a cracking issue, if you had, you know, loading and cyclic loading, if the test was actually useful, which is, I think, the first assumption, it's there to to say there is or is not presence of one or more failure mechanisms. Well, which ones? You know, so if I know that it's like a solder joint test, right, and we're doing thermal cycling and I'm familiar with the the solder makeup itself, uh, like sack solder today, there's there's a reasonable model that says, well, if you run a thousand cycles of that within this range of of uh, geometries and you don't get a failure, um, you're pretty much certain that you're you know, one percentile, what's the probability of getting a failure, you know, just even one failure out of how many samples you ran over that time frame? And you can play with, well, if the Weibel curve was here, then I know that I should have seen one if it if that's where the curve is. But if I push the curve more to the right, then I would expect there to be not a failure. And that's the lower, that's where I can say the Weibull distribution is lower tail is about here, mm-hmm. you know, with some very frequentist thinking, but I don't assume a confidence bound. I don't, you know, I don't have any data to do a variance at all. Right. You know, so I like, no, this is, we're at least this good <laughs> at this moment. That's our best estimate, but it's based on the assumption that, I know the failure mechanism that this test was evaluating the product for. And if anything failed, it would most likely be this mechanism. So, right. And then I, you know, I'm making assumptions, but I'm not making it it's an, an exponential assumption. I'm making an assumption based on 
the knowledge that it's the, is that like Bayesian? Is that am I dangerously close to that world? I'm using the the prior knowledge of what I'm actually supposed to be testing for, and then saying, well, those are typically Weibull distributions, and it's you know. Oh yeah, that's the thing. Inherent Bayesian. I mean, it's oh, a good grief! I have, to, Bayesian. I have to throw out my uh, diploma now. I, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just. But I think I think we, at the end of the day, we furiously agree. Information is everywhere. It's in our brains. It's in our experiences. It's not just on a test. And if you want to throw away all the information that you and the people who work with with you have um, have gathered over the years, and just rely on seventy seven hours worth of testing, well, that's just expensive. Apart from anything else, yeah, um, yeah that's true. But we. There's no such thing as an exclusively frequentist approach. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, we see confidence bounds all the time. You talk about a confidence bound. Yeah. And invariably, those confidence bounds are interpreted as a region within which we think there's a pretty good chance of something we're trying to study lying in. Mm -hmm. So we might have a confidence bound in the MTBF or the failure rate. And if it's a 90% confidence bound, then that implies we... Uh, we would expect with 90% confidence that the true MTBF or the true failure rate lies within those bounds. But in the frequentist school, it's actually about you. So if you do an analysis and you come with 90% confidence bounds using classical statistics, um, technically you're not allowed to say uh, we believe there's 90% chance of the real values between these two numbers. No, the, the, the correct interpretation is that um, – if I was to do this analysis a hundred thousand times for different subjects for different data sets using different approaches, but all from the world of classical statistics, then my ninety percent confidence bounds would uh, would contain the true value ninety percent of the time. So it's not about that. And that sounds like a semantic. Yeah, no, I've always struggled with not. that. It sounds exactly the same, but just a different view of it. Right. There's a, there's a 90% chance I'm right. And, it, and uh, in fact, there are some textbooks where, you know, the, 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 um, the pioneers of this world are famously and angrily quoted as saying, you can never, ever, ever use, if everyone says that this is a confidence bound and there's a 90% chance of this true value lying between these two bounds, you must immediately stop them and correct them and tell you no. It's just that if I was to do this analysis, hundred times you'd expect me to be right 90% of the time you expect the true value to fall within 90% of my analyses um, which is again uh, as soon as you start having that conversation with people they start sleeping with their eyes open mm. and it's not useful it's not useful and for making key decisions um, we're not going to run it a hundred times Right. Well, it's not even a hundred times. It's a hundred different data sets. Using my mind, using my classical school, yeah. to come up, it's 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 actually largely an irrelevant number, and that is not very useful at all because we need to make analyses and multi-billion-dollar decisions based on the more logical interpretation of a confidence bound, which is what we call subjective probability, which is Bayesian. Um, <laughs> so. We all use confidence bounds as if they're Bayesian. We do because it makes sense. It's how the human brain is wired. Mm -hmm. And so it's just I, I really struggle with the sort of chimeric approaches where you have 
sort of you can see the the classical frequent school pedigree embedded in this completely made up scenario which is inherently bayesian because you're introducing your own opinions and thoughts into it we are going to have a failure if we keep testing for another second once we finished yeah that's an assumption that's it is yeah and it's so so what's a person to do if you've got if you went to the step and got test data um instead of just whatever their failure rate was their claim or their failure rate um what's the appropriate thing to do well again we're gonna Going to get on a rabbit warren, aren't we? I mean, what's the decision? <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Well, I, we that's, I, I agree. It's like if I have two vendors and I'm evaluating them and saying, which one right. will meet our 10 year lifetime requirement and this needs to meet X re- reliability uh, of some sort over that duration and given stresses and all the other good stuff. Right. And we got two vendors and they're both claiming, uh, you know, a infinitesimal small failure rate. Like, well, what's your proof of this? What's your data? And they send you a, well, we did these three standard tests and they all had three batches and they all had zero failures. So there's not, to me, if that, if both vendors do exact same standard tests and, and their test facilities seem capable of doing them and they both ran the same number of samples and all that good stuff and they both got no failures. To me, there's no information there whatsoever except how good the lunch was that they provided when we visited. Yeah, by the same token, though, if that component of your system is, there are some conclusions you can make from a zero failure test. Thank you, what anybody says. They're not particularly strong in some cases, but that's okay. If the, you've got 10 components who you know the failure rate or reliability is, 50 times worse. I mean, if why are you faffing around selecting between these two vendors, if you know that the component, there are other components in your your product which are almost certainly going to fail before either of one of these two do. So move pick on. one, then move on. Yeah, pick yeah. one and move on. But let's say this is our core critical piece and we're trying to find a solution that's better than what we got now because it's not good enough. I mean, it the reason you go into more depth on these things is because it is important, but it's back to right. is what's your right decision. It could be selecting two vendors or it could be changing technology saying, Hey, what we got now is just not cutting it anymore. We got to change technology and go to a new system and new invention or something like that. I mean, is it, if it's important enough, my thought is you need to test it is run your right. own sequence on this stuff. Now, if the vendor has some data, you know, and but if it's that zero failure type stuff, I think there's still a pile of work to do before you can really get meaningful information out of it. Hell yeah. I mean, if you're, like you said, if this is the centerpiece, if this is the critical piece, the Jesus nut of your, um, of your product, why would you even entertain the idea of just taking the vendor's word for it? Are you going to let the success or failure of your product hinge upon data which has zero failures <laughs> in 77 hours and you're adding all that up? I mean, it, For a benign environment. <laughs> right. And that goes back to the culture. I mean, if, if, if your organization is trying to get out of having to really understand the most important part of your, um, of your product, then that's the issue. But 
I mean, again, it's, it's either important or it's not. If it's not important, then pick one and move on. If it is important, then you better be using something more than um, uh, than uh, vendor specs with zero failures. Okay, so let's put one in the middle here. I'm going to try to pin you down on something here. Oh, geez. Um, yeah. Now, let's say it's, you know, I'm building a, a, a model, a, a block diagram for the system. And the components, not our most critical piece, our tall tent, you know, we know that the most important one, a couple of them, we're working on those. We got tests running. We got vendor collaboration. We got all this good stuff going on. But I've got these other four or five components or subsystems that, I don't have the budget or time to do a full scale investigation of it. And I got a fit rate from the vendor, which I don't believe. And I, I really don't want to go to the mill handbook 217 from 25 years ago and pull out a random number. And, and I asked the vendor for data and they send me that 77 samples ran for a thousand hours with no failures. Now what do I do? You have to do some research, don't you? Yeah. I mean, if it's a, let's say it's a capacitor. And you can do research and know how those particular capacitors fail. You might even find out what you need to design into your system to try and prolong the life of said capacitor. Mm -hmm. um, for example, do you have to have some sort of subsystem or component which cleans the power supplies? So you don't get voltage spikes that ruin the day of said capacitor. Or, is it, you, or um, if it's that much of a concern, do you have to have some sort of redundancy? I mean, there's there's something you need to do. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, something's got to give. If you've got no money, you've got no time, to understand the reliability of these components and they're somehow important to your system, then you need to say, okay, we have to accept that there is a risk that this is not going to, this capacitor might not be as reliable as we would like it to be through just lack of information. Okay, so what do you do about it? Well, you can certainly do, re research is free. I can guarantee you can Google. <laughs> yeah, um, until you want to read the paper and then it's bundled up by one of the professional societies and it costs $500 a a paper to get access to it. I always uh, find that I don't difficult. Know I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, look at bearings, for example. If you want to find how ball bearings fail. Oh, well, there's tons of stuff out there. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and I agree same. with you. Some vendors have good papers out there. Some and make them available. And there's a Google Scholar is a wonderful tool to, to get. And then I've often just written straight to the vet, to the author and said, hey, could I get a copy of your paper? And they send it to me. I agree. There's ways to go do it, but it's not free. It takes time and you have to have library access. Not everybody does anymore. Tell you what, there is at least look, the research you do, which you classify as free, which is called Google search. At least explore that op option. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I'd at least explore that. Um, well, I found that there's a step before that is go talk to your, you know, your key engineers that know that technology and say, well, what is your, uh, estimate of its reliability um, that you can support, that you have evidence for. And it might be based That's on, I've worked with this technology and under these conditions, and I'd say it's X. But there's a lot of, it's, I think that smacks of some of what you would call Bayesian, is go ask five experts and pull that number together and or yeah, ask 10 yeah. people and that are familiar with the technology and pull that number together and say, that's the starting point. Now there's, I always put those in a fuzzy font in saying, well, I don't have hard evidence here. I guess that's my frequentist talking, but it's uh, my, our best estimate today. And if it's not the, the worst of the five that I need to go figure out and it's good enough, I'm going to go 
even if the lowest estimate is good enough, I'm like, mm, let's move on. Let's get the other four. Um, but if there, if it becomes the number three item we got to solve, uh, and the first two are being done, then I go back. Then I would go do the research. I do the free research. Or I do those both simultaneously, actually, because sometimes you find that golden paper that says, oh, in your circumstance, with I did this once with a capacitor. It was a large format capacitor. And it was the same. It was by the company that formulated the capacitor or designed it. Mm-hmm. And they did all these life studies on it, and they put in their curves. It, it was a very steep Weibull curve. It would run great for a number of years. And then it had a beta of seven. So it just was like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> we only do this for so long and then we're done. And, and it was perfect. It was exactly what we were looking for. And I called them up and they had all the data for it. And I'm like, you, sometimes you find the gold nugget, but sometimes you find just what's the typical failure mechanisms for different environments and you can narrow it down and then refine your search. Well, that's a lot. That sounds like you're trying to break the problem where, you know, the, the, the uh, producer, the manufacturer actually does have data that you have access to, which is yeah. the pro that, but the whole idea of asking people in your organization in their opinion, uh, that sounds like what I call free research. Yep. <laughs> it's all yep, free research. Much, yeah. Google, those guys, just yep. opinions. Yeah. yeah. Just opinions. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't, ex- I would not exclude those guys. And when I say do your free research first, um, but again, I mean, it comes back to the decision. If this, if this thing that this guy's talking about, if it's so important, it's a critical part of your system when it comes to reliability characteristics. Oh, you better not be assuming it's going to fail the second after those tests were finished. I mean, that's just, um, that's just if you're forced to put a number into a into a test exam to to have an answer. That's just, that's the sort of approach you're using. But do you want to make a profit or not? <laughs> you are. Uh, <laughs> Well, let's assume our listeners want to make a profit. And so that's the gist of it is there's, there's, this probably a subject for a whole nother podcast. But the idea is, is that I, you know, yeah, I guess you're just making a different set of assumptions than I'm comfortable with, but it's, yeah. Is it what really what you need to do or want to do? And I don't, I don't see that. So anyway, hopefully there's a couple of ideas in there. If you're faced with that kind of dilemma and you're pulling out whatever, standard or textbook that says, oh, this is the lower bound 60 percentile, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> realize what you're doing and, and that you could do much better. And I think that's the gist of it. Um, but if you, you've got any questions about this and data analysis or the, the debate that Chris and I regularly have on Bayesian and frequencies and our murky use of each other's approaches to statistics, um, let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR, and you can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us. Also, Chris and I and the other hosts are available through LinkedIn and our about pages. And um, we're this episode is 827 in our list, Chris. And I think we've had episodes probably close to oh, 300, 350 or so that were really just sparked by people's questions. So I'd like to Excellent. increase that percentage. So that's where folks that are listening should uh, pick up the phone or write us a note or, or hit uh, one of our websites and, and let us know what's on your mind. And we'd love to include that into one of the future episodes. So with that, I think um, I'm 
just going to go find some more rich data sets to go play with. <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Let's see what I can find. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks for clearing that up for me a little bit. I knew I would <laughs> like what that was, but I didn't. I couldn't put my finger on why. So. No worries. Always a pleasure, Fred. All right. Talk to you soon. Cheers, Fred. See you. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.